0: Hello, and welcome to Workforce, where we unravel the behavioral science behind things that happen in the workplace that impact your success and well-being, blending academic evidence with real-life experiences. I'm Dr. Grace Lorden, author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Today's episode is a load of bull stuff. No, seriously, we're talking bull sh*t. More specifically, the unwritten rules we're supposed to know and comply with in the office. What are they? What impact do they have on an organization? As always, I've got some brilliant guests to unravel all of this for us.
1: Just say things, just just write things down and put them in front of people in such a way that doesn't take a lot of time to read.
2: There's a power structure there. You feel there's an obligation when there's someone above you saying, oh, I really want you to do this. They never say you must, but you feel like you can't say no.
3: It's not the neurodivergency which disables us, it's society and the way that it's set up to not recognise our strengths.
0: Before we meet today's guests though, let's say hello to the awesome Teresa Almeida, fantastic behavioural scientist from the LSE. Hi, Teresa. I think as the podcast goes on, you're getting better and better abbreviations to describe you. How do you feel about that?
4: I'm loving it. (laughs) You know, just just write them all down. And then at the end of the year, just say, oh, how amazing (laughs) Teresa is. So, Teresa, let's get your perspective. How do you feel about office bull stuff? I'm really interested in the idea of unwritten rules. And, you know, I think especially when you start a new job is when we, we talk a lot about it. What are the things that everyone knows, but no one's written down? but also what are the things that help us as a team be better. And in the literature, there's a lot about mental models. So mental models of teams are kind of ideas, knowledge, processes that we all share that make us do better work without communicating with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. And it also, the literature tells us that these things matter for performance, matter for how teams feel, matter for psychological safety. But how do we build them and are they working? I think is some of the stuff I'm interested in hearing about today.
0: Well, for me, it's really interesting because in a number of the research studies that we've done at the Inclusion Initiative, one of the things that holds underrepresented talent back the most seems to be unwritten rules. So if you're somebody who's underrepresented in an organization, for some reason, it seems to be harder for you to access. Maybe you're not necessarily told the unwritten rules. Maybe access to the unwritten rules is a privilege that's there for people who are overrepresented in the workplace, for example. So I'm interested in hearing not just about how it impacts people, in the workplace, but what we can actually do about it.
4: And do you feel our offices have a lot of bullshit?
0: I do. I feel too much. I feel too much. I think it evolves over time with a culture. And as it evolves, the people who are actually defining the unwritten rules probably don't necessarily realize that they're doing it. So it's not necessarily conscious, but I can imagine going into an organization where things just are happening and you don't necessarily know why they're happening. And then it needs to be that the person is actually empowered to ask. Mm. So if I go back to episode one and we talk about um, should managers be extinct? One of the things I said about managing is that I like the role of the manager to evolve where they become much less micromanagers. But I think when it comes to the unwritten rules, it needs to be from day one that a person feels really comfortable approaching their manager and asking them why is something going on in the organization? Mm and that there's no negative repercussions for that. So the feeling for the person when they come in needs to be that that can happen and the manager needs to realize that that's actually their responsibility.
4: I also think it links quite nicely with the episode on resilience that we just did because when we talk about teams resilience and how people can, you know, build social connections to help each other, the unwritten rules and office bullshit kind of plays into that as well.
0: Yes, yes. Let's hear what the guests have to say, will we? Okay, so let's start with the basics, shall we? What are unwritten rules? My first guest is going to set the scene for us. His name is Giles Turnbull, founder of Use The Human Voice. Giles is a writer, editor, trainer, consultant, and coach who spends his time helping organizations communicate more like humans do. I wanted to ask Giles how he fits all that in, but instead I asked Giles to give me his definition of unwritten rules in the workplace.
1: The unwritten rules of the office Um, are the things that everybody knows, but that when you start working there on day one, you don't know. And it's nobody's job to tell you those things. So problem number one for anybody starting in any new job is that you have to learn these unwritten rules. And the way that most people learn them is by accident. They learn them by accidentally doing something or saying something, and then being guided or corrected or pointed towards the the cultural norms within that office you know we don't eat lunch at our desks here it's a thing you know we prefer to go down to the canteen or there's a park next door and in the nice weather we much prefer to go as a team for a lunch break in the park and you're not going to know that on your first day so you're going to rock up with your meal deal sandwich and you're going to eat it at your desk and you're going to wonder why everyone's giving you funny looks
0: So one thing our research has uncovered, Giles, is that unwritten rules can also be used to exclude people for kind of longer periods of time. So for me, I'm really interested in bringing transparency to unwritten rules. But I'm wondering, given your work, is this a fool's errand, given that human beings seem much better at verbal communications? And I guess transparency requires some written communication.
1: Absolutely, it does. And I, I don't think it's a fool's errand at all. I think, in fact, I very often bang on about how it's a really good idea to turn information or knowledge that exists in the realm of the tacit into information or knowledge that really exists in the realm of the explicit. And the, the simple way of doing that is write things down, put them in places where people can see them, make them obvious, make them visible, make it clear so that people who don't know things can find things out.
0: But people don't naturally do that, Giles. So what's the barrier to human beings writing things down that are obvious to them but might not necessarily be obvious to new joiners or other colleagues in the organisation?
1: I would guess that the the barrier very often is time, inclination and understanding that there is a need to meet in the first place. So we're, we're, we're sort of skirting around the thing on the background in the wall behind me, which is this poster that I helped to create while I was working in government which started because our team was hiring new people and I was sitting on a train one afternoon thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great if once we've hired these new people, if they sort of quickly understood the culture of the team that we're working with. So I started a document on my computer and started writing a list with the title, it's OK" at the top. Um, And then writing a list of things that it was generally okay to do in that team. And the list ended up being shared around various people added things we edited it a bit um one of our designers sonia turned it into this amazing very striking yellow poster with black text on it and we printed a few and stuck them up around the office and it went down really well and people were really excited and interested and happy about it because it was good to see some of this tacit knowledge made explicit Um, but this wasn't an instruction from leadership you know, I, I wasn't particularly high up in this organization. It was a very flat organization, but this was something that was that was born out of a need that we could see or that I recognized while I was sitting on that train was people don't get this stuff. We need to make it explicit. The simple way to do this is to write it down. Um, I suspect that the barrier very often in most teams is A, nobody has sort of sat and thought, well, what are the things that people don't know and need to know? Well, what, what, what are people being excluded by not knowing? Uh, and then B, yeah. well, we'll write a list down and then C, we will make it visible somehow.
0: So let's think more about this idea of people being excluded. Who are we talking about here? It's time to bring in my next guest, Lyric Riviera. Lyric discovered later in life that they were autistic and had ADHD. And in 2016 began their blog, Neurodivergent Rebel, which explores neurodiversity and the creative expressions of autistic people. I really recommend this blog. Lyric's blog pushes for acceptance of neurological differences and respect for the autonomy of neurodivergent people.
2: There are neurodivergent people out there in your workforce, whether you or they know it or not, uh we're here (laughs) you you might not know it we might not know it uh but neurodivergent people are everywhere and we're invisible a lot of the (laughs) times
0: so before you discovered that you had adhd and that you were autistic did you engage in masking or any type of conformity that would kind of allow you to work in a way that you felt people wanted you to be and how did that impact you
2: Well, that's actually what led to me discovering I was neurodivergent was because I was in this workplace where I was actually uh, a recruiter. So I knew what we were looking for as the ideal candidate. So I always tried to be the ideal candidate, which once I found out I was autistic, I realized the ideal candidate was as neurotypical as possible, (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. So I was camouflaging and masking so hard. And I internalized so deeply that The person I was was unacceptable at this job that I at at the time really thought was my dream job. Um, I internalized this so deeply because whatever I'm doing at the time is like such a core part of my identity that I fell apart. My mental health fell apart. My physical health fell apart. uh, And I was camouflaging so hard that it got to the point where I broke myself and I couldn't keep it up anymore. Um, And I was just really sick and wasting away. And for, for months and months, I kept going to a GP trying to get tests to figure out what's wrong with me. Why am I so sick? Why am I falling apart? And eventually they referred me out for a mental health assessment. So like, I, you know, I can't find anything physically wrong. Um, so we're going to, I think it's anxiety, you know, it was the, the thing. And I was like, well, you know, I'd happened to like, you know, a few months earlier, read something about like an autistic person, like their story about something. And I was like, hmm, and I'd shelved it. And so I was like, well, can I see someone that knows something about autism, you know, just kind of on a on a whim, just because if I'm going to go do this mental health path, which is like, I've never had any kind of mental health assessment uh, in my life before this. I was like, let's go ahead and like check this thing. And the doctor's like, well, I don't think you're autistic, but, you know, sure. And gave me this card for this referral. Uh, and, and so the rest is history really from there. But I was, you know, when I found out I was autistic, I realized I was just really burnt out. Yeah, and really just my self-esteem and self-worth, and even my sense of identity was just so confused because I was trying to be the version of myself that I thought the world needed to be, not who I actually was, that I was just so in a bad like state and I was I was just falling apart from it. Um, and finding out I was Autistic and you know eventually ADHD, but really that autism was that that aha moment that started everything else uh, saved my life.
0: Having heard about Lyric's experience of being in a workplace not inclusive of neurodivergent employees, I'm interested to know what is the impact on an organization as a whole when neurodivergent folk are excluded.
2: So what's really wonderful is like, you know, the difference in working with an organization that is like totally excludes neurodivergent people, uh, like you're missing out on all that talent. Like with neurodivergent people, we are literally like, we know diverse teams like, regardless of what kind of diversity it's good for your business because you have diverse perspectives and diverse ideas. So it gives you more eyes and more like ways to prevent falling into like pitfalls. Like when you're trying to solve your problems or you get more creativity, especially if you're in a creative organization, you want neurodivergent people. You want neurotypical people. You want everybody because you start throwing these ideas together and you get better ideas because you have a better wealth of knowledge to choose from. Uh, And so with neurodivergent people, we literally have different strengths and weaknesses, right? Like, so for example, uh, in the organization that wasn't inclusive, the fact that I don't see typos was a really, really big problem. Even if it was like a typo on an internal Slack message, it was like a big deal because it was a pet peeve of one of the owners. Uh, And I literally can't see them. Like it's part of my disability to not see typos. And so that really mess with me like I type better than I speak and I was afraid to send emails for years after leaving that company I'd have to retract them and send them back and retract them and send it back to like make sure there wasn't some typo I missed and it was like emails that it shouldn't even matter on um, and so in like the company where that's a problem like that was like a big like oh, it was put on to me that I was the problem and I I felt like the problem but in like an inclusive company, for example, where it's it's thought of as like, we're gonna support this and we're gonna appreciate the fact that everybody has different strengths and weaknesses. The next company I went to, I was really transparent about this. I was like, hey, I've taken classes. I've done all these things. I, it's not getting better. I can't fix it. I'm, you know, And I was like really convinced this was gonna be some kind of career limiting thing in this new company because it had been in the old company. And the difference was, okay, uh, well, that that's not a problem. We have people on the team who are really good at that and love doing proofreading. We also have technology, Grammarly, you know, that we can give everyone in the team so everyone can have this like installed on their computers, paid for, and so everyone had Grammarly Premium. It was universal. I wasn't singled out in any separate pipeline. And we made a standard procedure that if it was important, like a proposal or some kind of contract or a really crucial email, we had two people on the team of eight that were dedicated second set of eye proofreader people. And anything important had to go through the second set of eyes, regardless of who did it, whether it was me or, you know, the owner of the company <laughs> it was standard procedure. Um, and so it made it like a unified process that, it, you know, it's universal accessibility that way. Like, there's no gatekeeping. There's no, you know, it's like everyone in the company, you know, we're, we're playing to our strengths. You know, we have people that are good at proofreading. It doesn't matter if I suck at it. I've got other skills that I bring to the table that other people don't.
0: My next guest has a lot to say about the types of accommodations Lyric is now happily benefiting from in their workplace. Dan Harris is founder and CEO of Neurodiversity in business charity and an award-winning neurodiversity activist. The kind of support Lyric was talking about to make life for neurodiverse staff more accessible are commonly referred to as reasonable accommodations. I hate this terminology and Dan agreed with me. In fact, he wanted to take it one step further.
3: I know that when we were kind of chatting more generally on this topic previously, we talked about the whole idea of kind of workplace adjustments. And I I rally against that term, reasonable adjustments, because who are you to tell me what's reasonable, right? Um, Do I want a big corporate to be kind of be the gatekeeper? No. Um, And that's something that I'm really proud of that we're doing within Neurodiversity in Business. We've got a big project, which we're launching next week, which is around readily available adjustments, because... We've heard two forms of criticism, Grace, which is we hear a big criticism from the neurodivergent employee, but most of all, the person who's in that recruitment pipeline at the interview stage, that they're really afraid of putting their hand up and saying, I'm neurodivergent. These are the ways that you can get the best out of me through this interview process. They feel like that would disadvantage them, so they're staying quiet. We also hear from the other side of the coin, from our corporate members, of which we've now got over 700 within NIB, um, they are a little bit afraid um, and they are uh, kind of anxious about the time investment to understand what are the good practice um, adjustments that could and should be in place for our employees. So there's a difficulty and there's a mismatch there, which is why... We're launching this project around readily available adjustments. Our aim, Grace, is to define the industry gold standard as to what that menu of options should be for neurodivergent employees, either at the recruitment process stage, or performance management, or career progression, uh, promotion panels, etc. Um, because we want to remove the stigma. So, for example. In our post-COVID, post-lockdown world, it's perfectly acceptable for me as a father to say, hello boss, on Friday at 5.30, I'm gonna leave the office early because I need to go and pick my little girl up from karate class, right? That's normal now, I hope. At least it is in my kind of little world and I appreciate I live in a bubble sometimes. What's not normal is me as a neurodivergent person, an employee, put my hand up in a meeting and say, sorry boss, this meeting is not working for me. Um, The way that you're communicating information, the way we've not prepared for this meeting, you've not set out an agenda, we've not followed a clear structure, we've not had a real-time updating of the topics and and confirmation of of who's agreeing to what, we've not agreed to send out actions and and, and clear deadlines, and we've not even agreed to kind of summarise in written format for some of the folk who will process this information better after the meeting. So, that is still not normal. That's still not accepted. And you know what? If I did that grace in a meeting with my boss, my imaginary boss here, that may not go down as well as I would like. But that's a kind of cultural change we're trying to push for within Neurodiversity in Business to say, actually, you know, this is just as normal as trying to get the best out of your, um, your workforce on hybrid working and flexible working, whereby as you all know, flexible working disproportionately impacts women and girls in the workforce um, yep. because they have disproportionate childcare responsibilities and caring responsibilities for older folk. So, you know, we need to have that big cultural shift.
0: So I want to come back to what Giles was speaking about at the top of the episode, Unwritten Rules, and how does this play into the neurodiverse diverse experience in the workplace?
3: this is something that um a lot of neurodivergent folk struggle with and i would surmise just based on what i hear it's possibly more uh, the the autistic people and and maybe kind of adhd as as well but i know that there is just such a kind of rush to assumption whereby you assume that other people understand how the culture operates etc so um you know the whole idea around um what is appropriate practice in terms of small talk at the beginning of the meetings. There are different views um, and perspectives here, which is some people who have that view that actually this is one of the most important parts of the meeting because you're setting the scene, you're getting people comfortable, etc. Whereas for others, you know what, that builds up an incredible amount of anxiety. Um, I know autistic people, I have, you know, dozens of people contact me on LinkedIn each week and they tell me how nervous they are about talking about their weekend, for example, you know, Mm. what's the right level of detail to go into? Um, You know, how personal do I be? Um, You know, do I know when to stop? Because sometimes we like to talk about our special interests, right? And we don't always read the room in, in, in the way that knowing when to stop and when's the right time to move on. So it's really hard because I think that organizations kind of are increasingly understanding this but also what I'm hearing from HR departments is that they're very unwilling to codify and and, and try and issue guidance on this um, because they don't want to be um, kind of forcing down a particular viewpoint and they also don't think that they are necessarily the right, um, the right people to understand what happens within the business and also the business is a misnomer because Finance, they're going to be so different from IT, who are going to be so different from HR. So, um, what I think the, the way to kind of deal with this topic is not to attack it head on, but to kind of do it from a pincer movement type mentality. So, there's the first piece, which is that really strong executive kind of visibility piece, which is we want to become a neuro inclusive employer of choice. We aren't there yet, we're on a journey let's kind of listen to our neurodivergent folk and you tell us what we need to do better. And then the other piece is kind of more cultural and it's managers, which is um, we accept uh, neurodiversity is just a beautifully simple concept, which is cognitive diversity. um, And we are and we should be dealing with people on an individualized basis. And you made that point earlier, which is, Get this right for your neurodivergent folk. And you know what? It benefits all of us. We all need to be kind of doing this.
0: So how can we fix this? It's obvious that unwritten rules have a disproportionate impact on neurodiverse talent. But we cannot deny that improving communication will benefit everybody, regardless of whether they're neurodiverse or not. Let's see what our guests have up their sleeve in the way of some practical tips for organisations wanting to become more inclusive. How can managers ensure they're creating the best environment for their neurodivergent team members to thrive?
2: They have to be ready to listen because like if the neurodivergent team members don't feel they can speak up, uh, you know, they're not going to feel like it's worth even admitting that they're neurodivergent because what, what, what's the benefit to admitting it when it could potentially cause people to look down on you or cause you to have, you know, in, in fair treatment in your workplace. Uh, because that is what a lot of us have experienced in the past, where it's like, oh, you know, we've been dismissed or, you know, it's, it's gone really poorly. So like a lot of us, unless we know for sure, like we have to speak up because things are falling apart, or it's going to help us get our needs met, a lot of times we're not going to take that risk, not, not at work.
0: We've heard what Lyric has to say about leaders needing to be ready to listen and action once neurodiverse colleagues do speak up about what has to change in the organisation. I'm still interested in what else can be done by firms and by leaders to unravel the unwritten rules in the office. Let's hear the ideas that Jazz Turnbull has regarding this. So what should firms do to rewrite their culture towards more open communications and transparent policies away from the unwritten rules? Um,
1: I often think that um, a lot of organizations spend an awful lot of time getting tied up in knots about communications strategies. And my simple strategy is communicate, just, just say things, just just yeah. write things down and put them in front of people in such a way that it doesn't take a lot of time to read. It doesn't take a lot of effort to read. It feels natural to read it and allow teams to communicate as well there's an awful lot of comm strategy that is um, either about facing outwards from the organization to the outside world which is effectively more like marketing then the other flavor of com strategy yeah. is top down it's it's as as c-suite executives we must um, instruct the people who work for us in in the various rules and and things that we want them to do very little thought tends to be put into sideways team-to-team communication. How does team A communicate with team F?
2: Mm.
1: Um, why can't team X understand what team D are doing? And it's because there's not a lot of thought put into that. There's, not, there's, there's very little strategy around it. Um, so my strategy is allow people to communicate. Give them the time and the freedom to broadcast their current status as they go along. This is the concept that I tried to outline in a book I wrote called The Agile Comms Handbook, um, uh, which is all about communication that moves as fast as the work itself does. The idea being that if if teams are empowered and allowed and given a platform on which to broadcast their status for the benefit of other teams, then you'll solve a lot of that team-to-team communication problem. If leaders join in Not as leaders sending top-down messages, but as other members of the team. If leaders effectively broadcast in exactly the same way, then that's a good idea. That works well. Um, If some, or in very few cases, probably all, not many organizations are going to go with all, but if some of this communication ends up happening in the public domain, then even better, I think because that's a way of of broadcasting your organizational intent to the outside world or to stakeholders who may not be able to peer inside your your bubble of technology.
0: And what might the benefits to organizations be if they implement these changes? It seems logical to me that while neurodiverse diverse talent will, of course, benefit from these improvements to a company's culture, everybody also benefits. These feel like no-brainers. Back to Dan for his take on this. The changes that mostly that we would like to make are ones that will disproportionately positively impact people who are neurodiverse, but they'll positively impact everybody. And this is the part that I struggle with with the conversation. So anytime, I, um, anytime I've i spoken to people who are neurodiverse about the reasonable adjustments, just using the old old language that they've requested at work, which sometimes are met positively and sometimes less so there are always things that would help everybody. So the example that you gave about the meeting, the agenda, the written communications afterwards, that will help everybody in the meeting. And it's actually, but it's just bad practice that that's there. The idea, you know, one of my colleagues really needed some work that was a working space that was soundproof. But the evidence that we have is for every individual, not not any particular type, they work better when they actually have soundproof areas and that these open plan offices don't work. So in some ways, I think the struggle for colleagues who are neurodiverse is coming because the work environment was created by a certain type of person, maybe without much thought even about what was going to impact productivity. And we've become entrenched that that's the right kind of work model. So I'd love to rip it up and say, actually, your colleague shouldn't have to stand up in the meeting and say, it's not working for me they should stand up and say this is bad practice we need the agenda we need the re- otherwise we're wasting everyone's time who's sitting here and it's it's very expensive
3: you're right you're right and I'm glad you phrased it in that way because you know what what should happen is we shouldn't use the m-word we shouldn't need to talk about neurodiversity or cognitive yeah. difference what we should be saying is this doesn't comply with our established working protocols and our policies around how to conduct good meetings and how to maximize the efficiency of our teammates. And you know, you you talk about that kind of ripping up of the office. I've got a wonderful example here, Grace. So um, I went up to Glasgow uh, recently and I visited the Barclays office up there. And I was blown away by how they had designed their office to build in inclusion by design and particularly neuro inclusion by design. So for example, just the The mere fact of there being individualized controls around lighting and AC and and noise, as you mentioned earlier, what that did is it just removed the necessity for me as an employee to tell you as an employer, um, actually, you know, I need this adjustment. You know what? I don't need the adjustment because it's built into the fabric of the business. So that was wonderful. Um, And that meant as well that people didn't need to go through that whole pain and anxiety around disclosing And, you know, as we know, diagnosis is a a privilege in itself. So, um, you know, other groups who may not have a diagnosis but are absolutely neurodivergent, um, that enables them to access the workplace.
0: So, Teresa, what do you think about the discussions regarding the unwritten rules, the impact on neurodivergent talent and the arguments that have just been made that actually if we manage to unravel the unwritten rules, it won't just benefit neurodivergent colleagues, but benefit all colleagues?
4: I think from an academic perspective, there's a lot of research that actually backs this up. Mm. Usually around, they use the word accommodations, but the fact that accommodations are something that everyone needs and that by making it clear that you can ask for these things, actually more and more people will start talking about how they prefer to work, what makes them more productive and how they'll thrive in the workplace. So I definitely agree with Dan and the guests on this.
0: Yeah. For me, it's striking that some of the things that are called reasonable adjustments, you know, needing a quiet place to work. The research is really clear that people don't do well in open plan offices. So why firms invested so much in open plan offices, I do not know. Ideally, quiet places will be made available for all colleagues to work. And in the absence of that being affordable, giving autonomy to work at home seems to be a good workaround for that. Um, Meetings, having kind of clear agendas, particularly if a person is expected to participate in something that's going to have very long-run repercussions for the firm, seems again to be a no-brainer, but doesn't always happen. And, you know, once again, I think the important
4: point to stress is that everything we've spoken about feels like a no-brainer. Mm. And I also think back to the idea, I think it was Lizzie and Alex who talked about, you know, work style. Oh, I love Lizzie and Alex. And, and what they were saying was really around this, right? They said, "We l- yeah. let's redesign the rules in a way that helps people. And there's a bunch of new tools, you know, Slack, AI tools that can help you actually work the way you want to. So I think Lyric was talking about this. There's Mm. things that we can start implementing that make the unwritten rules more explicit, but also make everyone happier and more productive.
0: What makes me really curious now is looking at firms who are demanding people come into the office five days a week, four days Mm. a week, who are auditing whether or not they're in. So using that in kind of a compliance-based mode and asking people to change their behavior if they're not necessarily coming in, as compared to the firms who aren't doing that, who are allowing the autonomy. And I'm guessing we're going to see sorting in the economic sense where, talent that's underrepresented including neurodiverse talent is going to be much more likely to go into the second set of organisations so over the long run there'll be some organisations that will be high in diversity and others that will be low Mm. huge thanks to Giles Turnbull Lyric Riviera and Dan Harris for sharing their time and thoughts with us and to Teresa Almeida for simply being fantastically fabulous (laughs) This is the bit where I plead for your support. Please give a helping hand in getting workforce in front of more listeners by subscribing, rating and reviewing wherever you are listening to this. We'd also love to hear your questions and ideas for future episode topics. You can contact me anytime through my website on www.gracelorden.com Big thank you to Decibel Creators for producing this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Lorden and I do hope I earned the privilege of your time. Bye for now.